Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 217, and we're going to be interviewing Janet. How are you doing, Janet? Hi, Jim. I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. Awesome. Thanks for having me today. Thank you for coming. How was your New Year's last night? Very quiet, though I actually did stay up till midnight. Okay. uh, Of which in the last probably... I don't know, five or six years I haven't, you know, I'm in bed at nine o'clock and like, oh, well, but yeah, I was actually up last night. Somebody was setting off a bunch of fireworks and all the cats were kind of like, I don't like it. And then everything calmed down (laughs) Mm. and here we are. Yeah. So happy new year, everyone. Yes. Happy new year to everyone that's listening. So let's get to you. Tell me about your childhood and growing up. Start from the very beginning. The very beginning. I'm from Goffstown, New Hampshire, and my parents had a house here. My father uh, was the oldest of five, so I'm one of 17 cousins here. Um, We moved when I was two to Chicago for a year, and then we moved to Cincinnati, Ohio when I was about three. Um, My childhood in Cincinnati was outstanding. Um, It was in the suburbs of Cincinnati. We were about 45 minutes from downtown. Uh, we had the yard, the neighbors, lots of kids, everybody had a bike. Um, of course at the time I didn't realize how dysfunctional my family was, but childhood was great. Um, like I said, lots of friends, we had family vacations every year. My father would usually bring us from Ohio up to New Hampshire. Sometimes we would go to Montana. My mother was an only child and sometimes we'd drive to Montana. So I got to see lots of the United States, do a lot of... So um, when I was 12, um, the Friday night after Thanksgiving Thursday, um, my father died in our house. Um, He had been diagnosed with cancer and had been given six months to live. He'd been in the hospital for about a month and he'd been home for about a month. And then the Friday night after Thanksgiving in 1976, um, he died in our house when one of my sisters and I were home. I'm the youngest and then the middle sister, Carolyn, was home. And, you know, without a lot of detail, um, it was 1976, so a long time has gone by. Pain changes, the same stuff doesn't make me cry. Different stuff will make me cry now. But um, so that night was, you know, obviously very traumatic. I was 12, my sister was 18. She was just home for Thanksgiving weekend. My mother was gone on a temper tantrum. We didn't know where she was. The other sister came from downtown Cincinnati, Louise. She was 20. So it was very, very horrible night, as I'm sure anybody could imagine. And the ambulance came, the fire truck came, all the neighbors came. Um, After that, that weekend, the sister had was home for the holiday weekend, Carolyn. And she told me on Sunday that I had to go to school on Monday. And yeah, and I immediately became very upset. I was sobbing uncontrollably, the tears. And I went to the kitchen and I asked my mother, 
to if I could stay home until we got back from burying my father. We were coming from Cincinnati to New Hampshire to bury him. And she said no. And I asked again, of course, sobbing. And it was no. And I asked a third time and she turned around and she told me I would be in school on Monday morning. And sometimes you just got to get back on that horse. Well, over that weekend, in my grief, I had shaved my eyebrows off as well. So my mother made me go to school Monday and Tuesday before we buried my father with my eyebrows shaved off. Um, can, I ask, can I ask what the thinking was behind shaving your eyebrows off? Um, that's a great question. I have chalked it up to my grief all these years. I never investigated that too much. Um, it's weird. And I was looked at very strange for a little bit. <laughs> and I just never investigated. Honestly, Jim, I never investigated that too much. I figure it was the grief and it was embarrassing. And I never said it out loud that I did that. And maybe till about five years ago, I wow. kept that very secret. I was very ashamed and embarrassed by it. Um, so yeah, good question. Um, grief. I'm going to chalk it up to grief. Okay. So after that, you know, um, about a year later, uh, I was in seventh grade. And when I was going into ninth grade, we moved to Boulder, Colorado. And I had already started drinking in Cincinnati, the grief um, at 12 years old, especially the way he died in the house. Um, the night he died, he got his glasses on and got his flashlight and he went to the oxygen tank. Um, so at 12 years old, I thought when you die, it goes black in your head. So I'll get to that in a minute. So we moved to Boulder, Colorado. I was going into ninth grade. Um, there, you know, my father had died in that horrible way with the extra trauma. And then obviously there was some issues with my mother because who makes their kid go to school before they even have their father buried? But we moved to Boulder and it was a lot different than Cincinnati. No one had two parents in the household. Um, the, it's a very transient place. It's a college town, uh, city, whatever, Boulder, Colorado. So um, <clears throat> it was quite different and, you know, I, my mother started kicking me out of the house there. Um, she kicked me out for stuff like she would go out to dinner and come home and I was supposed to clean up my room and put her sheets in the dryer. And instead a friend would call and be like, Hey, do you want to smoke a joint? You know, and I'd go over there and figure, well, I'll just do that stuff when I get back. And well, she didn't like that. And she threw all my stuff out in the yard and said, I didn't live here anymore. And so she kept kicking me out for really ridiculous things. And she was neglectful and abusive. She was verbally abusive. And um, it was scary. Like when people were around, she was normal. And as soon as they would leave, her whole demeanor would change, the whole look on her face, and no one would believe me. So in Boulder, 
um, I was skipping school and I had just gotten into more alcohol <clears throat> and more pot. And then at that time, Boulder, Colorado was the cocaine capital of the world. And I snorted so much cocaine when I lived out there that I gave myself a deviated septum. What age did you first use? Pot or anything? Or anything. What was the first thing you ever used? 12 years old. And what was it? Um, alcohol. Who and was it with? Who'd you do it with? Neighbors. Um, there were some kids in the neighborhood. And one of the girls that I hung out with, um, her father had been to Colorado and he had brought home, I don't know, like 50 cases of cores and had them all stacked in the basement. So she would take a few cases off and take a few beers and then take a few more off. And then, so it wasn't just like she grabbed a six pack off the top. She'd skim down and get a few, so they wouldn't be noticed right away. We were 12, 13. And then I would sneak out in the middle of the night and we would go drink by the pond. And I was surprised how many of the kids in the neighborhood my age were out at the, in the middle of the night. So I started drinking and smoking a little bit of pot in Cincinnati. We moved to Boulder and then it was just full blown so quickly because it was just so widespread there. And it, was just so easily available. And when she started, my mother started kicking me out. You know, I was staying with people who were a lot older than me. And, you know, one thing just kind of led to another. And at the time it was great because I wasn't getting all that abuse at home and I was partying and I thought I was so cool because I was 13 and 14 and hanging out with big people and you know, people who were 10 years older than I was say, and, you know, I did get kind of a reputation for my tolerance because I'm a small person. I'm not even five feet tall. I barely weigh a hundred pounds and I, you know, we would get into drinking games and all kinds of stuff. And my tolerance was amazing. So, you know, I look back and sometimes I, I laugh because some of it, you know, and other times I just say how sad. Yeah, but absolutely. My, my drug use um, left unchecked, being kicked out, especially. I mean, I became, I liked it. I'm not going to lie. I liked partying. I liked basically having no curfew or anyone to tell me what to do. I was working full time at 14 at Wendy's. So I was earning a paycheck and really well, was. Going to school? Well, it was a program through school that put me into the work program. But I did the I, same thing. We called it co-op. Yes, it was like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they called it co-op, and it was basically you get to leave school early as long as you're going to work. That's right. And they also had um, a shop class in that building and stuff like that, too. So there was a little more to it than just getting the job and going to work. Yeah, we had to take a class. What was the class? I forget. There was a class that came along with it. I forget which one, but you had to take that's one of their right. classes. Yes, that's right. And there was a woman, Beverly, who ran it, and we all adored her. She was so well-respected, and so we never skipped that stuff. We would always go to that. 
but I got into the work program. So I was working and I, so I did have some money and basically spent it all on drugs. And in Colorado, I was doing all kinds of drugs, um, speed mushrooms. I tried LSD, um, lots and lots of cocaine, lots and lots of marijuana. And they just um, threw out of high school. Yes. And drinking. Yeah. And a lot of drugs and, you know, the quaaludes were real popular then too. Um, during that time when I was about 13, 14, uh, actually I better not say that. I, I don't remember what year it was, but time magazine did do an article. Um, it made the front cover of about Boulder, Colorado, where the hip meet to trip. It was all about the Hilton Harvest House and the cocaine and quaaludes. And I have a little secret, Jim, it wasn't just the Hilton Harvest House, <laughs> but you know, so Boulder was well known for the cocaine and quaaludes and, and everything else. And so I really got full blown into drugs um, I was a blackout drinker and didn't even understand in, until decades went by that blackout drinking isn't normal, that it, I just thought that was part of drinking, that it happens to everybody. And, you know, later when I stopped and these kinds of things, I, I realized, I learned it's, it's not normal. Yeah, no, I, I, I was a blackout drinker as well. Mm-hmm. And, and you I know, used to be I, an idiot while I was blacked out drunk. The worst was waking up the next morning and looking at the text messages you sent, and you're just like, yep. oh, my God, I can't believe I said that to this person. Well, you know, at least back then, we didn't have cell phones yet. They, they, were, um, they were installed in cars in the console at the time. They were big as a shoebox, but you didn't have personal ones yet. So thank goodness for that because, boy, my mouth could really uh, – let you know what kind of mood I was in. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, this lasted for years and I went to work and I, you know, eventually got an apartment of my own. Um, I got myself legally emancipated three months before my 15th birthday um, because my mom just kept kicking me out so much. I just couldn't take that anymore. And so I got legally emancipated three months before my 15th birthday. I got an apartment. I was working. Um, all my friends, especially my coworkers, you know, every weekend we would just party, party. And, you know, it was a lot of fun and I thought it was great. And I thought I was, um, nothing was wrong with me, you know. Um, it brought a lot of problems. I mean, at school, I was skipping school and they, uh, eventually withdrew me because I had missed so many days in a row, not just a few classes. Um, I did get a GED. Um, so, you know, I did a lot of things um, during that time, not realizing. And it didn't mean that every time I drank, I became a mess either. I mean, sometimes after work, we'd have a couple drinks and go home, say, or, Lots of things. It wasn't always like I was falling down drunk or nasty or blacked out, but eventually that would always come back around. Um, and yes, it. so there was a lot in Colorado, um, married, divorced, um, 
one thing that happened in my marriage was when we first got married, his family wanted to know, was he sure he wanted to marry me? Because he told me his family thought my family was weird. And, you know, I always knew there was some things going on in our family, my family. Um, I had no idea that others could recognize it. And then that sort of undermined our relationship. And I was only 20 when I got married and these kinds of things. Um, I ended up walking out on my husband and moving back to New Hampshire. So I've been back up here for 35 years. Um, most of my jobs have been in the restaurant industry, 28 years in the restaurant industry with 25 of them bartending. Um, I never drank behind the bar, but certainly as soon as my shift was over, we were allowed to have a shift drink or two. And, and so just kind of always in that lifestyle around drinking, never saw anything wrong with it, never saw anything wrong with my behavior. Of course, I was the one that didn't have those problems like other alcoholics or, you know, um, Isn't it amazing you can control yourself for certain situations? I think it really is amazing how that happens. I was able to do the same thing because I work um, car salesman. So when I have to go around and drive the cars, I can't be drunk and I have to talk to customers. I can't. Obviously, if you have a drink, the customers are going to smell out of your breath. Right. So I can't do right. that. Yeah, but that's not when I got home. It was a different story. I was all by myself. Yes. And so it was very easy to stay in that lifestyle. And for whatever reason, you know, I always just thought there's nothing wrong with me. Yeah. Sometimes I get too drunk. Yeah. Sometimes I say things I shouldn't have said these, kind, of, you know, but it never woke me up. And here's a good example. I had two DWIs. So the first one, the lawyer, they videotape you coming into the police station. So he had me watch the video with him one day and I get out of the paddy wagon. I'm in a jean skirt and low heels walking just fine. I get up to the window where you have to take off all your jewelry and stuff. And the moment I opened my mouth to speak, I couldn't believe my own eyes. I was, you couldn't understand a word I said. It, not one thing came out of my mouth. And I remember kind of slinking down in my chair. I was so embarrassed, but it still wasn't enough for me to say to myself, I have a drinking problem. So, you know, Time goes on. I'm I'm bartending. I'm I'm up till four in the morning. I'm I'm sleeping till noon. I'm going right back to work. So I stayed in that for quite a while without any reevaluation. And then I had a and they did send me to the first offender program here in New Hampshire, which was a joke. Um, it was like three nights a week for two hours a night. We would get out and be like. Hey, want to go across the street and get a drink? The second DWI. Oh, also the first one, I blew a 0.23. So they charged Ooh. me with aggravated. Yeah. And the That's judge. Heavy. 
that. Especially for someone your size, you're not even yes, five sir. foot. Yes, sir. The only thing that saved me is you're allowed to have them retested in a private lab and it came back 0.19. So they had to drop aggravated. That's good. But let me tell you, that judge was so mad at me. I will never forget him looking over his glasses and saying, little girl, you shouldn't have even been able to walk to your car, let alone drive it. And at the time, I'm like, I didn't really understand tolerance. You know what I mean? As far as, you know, a point four, they is coma. So, yeah. Yeah. So that was the first one. And then it was just over seven years when I got nailed for the second one. So they had to charge me first offense. But this one was different. When I went to court, I actually stood in the courtroom and pled guilty, which I will never forget because the entire courtroom collectively at the same time gasped. And they made me do the second offender program and that is not a joke and I hated it and I was so angry, but I do have to admit that I am so grateful now because I did learn a lot and it did not at first, but it did change my drinking. And then six years ago, I, I stopped drinking altogether. Um, but that second offender program, they, first it was very expensive. And then they make you stay for a whole week. You're not allowed to call your daughter. You're not allowed to have any outside communication. Um, you're very structured for those seven days. They get you up nice and early, um, right to classes. They have little assignments that you do and, you know, there's breaks and there's, they, they feed you really well. Um, of course I was such a nervous wreck up there. I barely ate, but, um, um, I did learn a lot enough to, when I got out of there and went to the bar, I'm sitting there drinking a drink, realizing why I'm drinking now. It, in a way, Jim, it kind of took the fun out of it, if you will. Um, but I am so grateful now because of the things that they taught us, um, which helped change a lot of my, well, you know, I started realizing that blackout drinking isn't normal that you, so I, like I said, it didn't, I didn't just stop drinking when I got out of there, but it did change my drinking, um, you know, to what I considered, I guess, more responsible, but, you know, I'd still go and have four or five or six drinks and not really think much about it. But now in hindsight that I have stopped for six years, that was still too much, you know, what was your main drink? Um, I love the Captain Morgan, <clears throat> Captain and Ginger with a lemon or vodka um, and then shots of anything. I'll match you a shot for a shot just to, oh, you know. Me too. That's how yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. That's all I did with shots. I would literally buy the shot bottles, buy a sleeve of them, which is 12, and just down the shots. Right, right. <laughs> And my thing was, I would consume them in a short amount of time. It would be within an hour or two. Because yeah. so I, I would want to be sleeping by like 11 or 12. So I get home at 9 or 10, 
night, well, like say 9.30. So I drink for an hour and a half, do all those shots, right. eat like a half a pizza <laughs> and pass out <laughs> and get up the next day and do it all over again. I see same thing, same thing. And, um, and never saw myself as a problem. You know, some of those nights I would get home and the next morning I would fly to the window and my car would be parked perfect. And then, you know, I'd find an unopened pack of cigarettes on the table and realize I'd stopped at a store. And to this day, I cannot ever tell you what store it was at. And that happened a lot. I'm ashamed to say it, but I did that a lot. And I would realize that. And I would call my girlfriend and be like, yeah, I stopped for a pack of cigarettes somewhere again last night. He, he, he. And we kind of tee. And I look at that now and I'm mortified. I'm so thankful that I never hurt anybody else, let alone myself. But thank God I never hurt anybody else. So things continued and I was pretty good at it all. And um, eventually I got into smoking crack um, at about two, around 2008. Um, bartending, people would call me up and be like, hey, what are you doing after? Come over, we're having a party. Most of the time I would go home, but after a while, I was like, you know, I'd be up awake until four or five in the morning, sitting there watching TV. And I thought, you know, why not? So I didn't start smoking crack at first, but that's what everybody else was doing. And eventually it was like, hey, let me try that. You know, and I announced it out. Hey, you know, let me try it. They would offer me all the times before. And I said, no, no, thank you. Well, eventually one night I tried it. And it doesn't take any time at all if you're addictive personality like me. And then the thing about the crack was, and, you know, I had snorted tons of cocaine in Boulder. Um, once I did a hit, I never wanted a line again. No temptation at all. If okay. somebody put out a line for me, I'd scoop it into a spoon and say, you don't mind if I cook this, do you? And um, not going to lie, I loved it. Um I loved everything about it, especially at first. I said to myself, well, this is a miracle drug because I could remember everywhere I went, everything I said, everything I did, unlike the alcohol. So at first I was like, this is great. I can remember everything. Plus the first hit, like, let's say you, you do your first hit, you were all mad at your boyfriend. Well, one hit, you're like, boyfriend who? I mean, it is like that instant where your problem's just up in smoke. Um, so I smoked day and night for four years, loving it. Um, it became very easy, too, with no guilt, shame, remorse, like the alcohol provided, because maybe I gave a friend a hit. And they'd be like, hey, where did you get this? This is the best stuff in town. And apparently it was the best stuff at the time. I didn't know there was such a bad, anything as bad. It's all yeah. bad. You know? So at first I would sigh and be like, ah, you know, because I didn't want to get into like that responsibility. But before I knew it, 
everybody wanted what I was getting and I'd leave with 800 bucks in my hand, say, you know, eight people all wanted a gram. So next thing you know, I'm asking my dealer, what can I get with 800? And then I set everybody else up with what they had paid for. And I'd be left with a big old stack for myself for free. Yeah. So I wasn't having the guilt, shame, remorse. I wasn't waking up the next day and going, oh, you just spent 200 bucks on crack. And you know what I mean? So there wasn't any of that going on for a while. Um, the crack too. Um, so in that way, I got this sense of power, kind of running the show, kind of the star in the room, if you will. I don't think I flaunted it or really maybe acted that way, but in my mind, I was kind of like, this is great because everybody's like seeking me out, depending on me, I'm getting everything for free and, you know, so it did make me feel kind of uh, in control, maybe a control that I've never really felt in my own life over my own life. I, I'm not sure, but I did it day and night for four years. And um, towards the end, I didn't really quit by choice. Like one day I wasn't like, hey, this is ruining my health or stinking up my hair or I might get caught or, um, but my circle, a lot of people had been arrested and were in jail. Um, some of well, my what, friends- what, had, what kind of things were they arrested and jailed for? For selling crack, for selling, selling crack. drugs, yeah. Um, and then some of my friends had died, not necessarily from drug overdoses. One of my really good friends had pancreatic cancer and passed away. So what happened was my circle got smaller and smaller and it was harder to, eventually I couldn't get the product that everybody was loving. So I was having to go to random dealers and back to the whole thing of, give me your money. I'll be right back. That whole thing. I don't, I didn't like that. So time would go by where I wasn't using, you know, but crack has such, it gets such a hold on you that, you know, eventually I would have to trust somebody and maybe they would come back or I didn't get robbed that way, but, um, you know, it, I, I was going to different people that I didn't really know and um, didn't know what kind of product I might get, say. So just here, part about doing drugs. I mean, now that I'm sober, I think about it. I go, you know what? I took the stranger's word and put that shit up my nose. I know. I know. I know. And when you say it out loud, it's like, okay. We're crazy. Right. I know. Well, see, this is what drugs will do to your brain, really. I mean. You don't think about consequences. Not at all. Or, you know, if you, you know, I would get mine usually from the same person. So never questioned it. But how do you know if they ever get a bad batch, say, or, you know. So time, some time would go by, maybe, you know, a couple weeks. I wouldn't use any cocaine. And then, you know, just kind of more time going on in between. So I made it also too, when I first 
tried to stop. I, um, I also had a lot of homelessness in my life. Um, it wasn't necessarily drugs and alcohol. Some of it really was money, but, um, you know, the drugs didn't help. I'm not going to pretend that that didn't have an effect probably. Um, so where was I? Let's see. So time would go by. Oh, right. So when I first wanted to stop using crack, um, I had moved into one of my friend's father's house. He had an extra room. And he said to me one day, if you go back to school, meaning college, because I did get my GED, he said, you don't have to pay any rent. So I enrolled in school and I did get a bachelor in 2013. Um, so during that time, you know, I was like, I'm going to school now and I'm not going to use that stuff anymore. But I did, you know, um, but like 10 months went by and I had a weekend, just smoked crack all weekend. And then I made it another six months and had a night. And then it was at that time, honestly, I, I did hear in one of your podcasts, you're agnostic. So yeah, that's fine. So if I mention heaven, God, or Jesus, I, it's not to offend anybody or. Oh no, it's your story. Or, this okay. is your story. I, I don't have the power to save souls, but if anything I say, okay. So, um, that morning after there was 10 months, I had a weekend, six months, I had a night. It was the next morning. I said, Jesus, I've been smoking crack again. And he says, I know. He said, try to stop. He didn't yell at me. He didn't threaten me with hell. He's very loving. It's, it's amazing. So after that, um, that is the last time I smoked crack. Um, uh, yeah, I, I want to make sure I'm not getting myself mixed up here. So anyway, um, that was the last time I smoked, um, which was amazing, you know, because like I had an apartment and a friend would call and say he, him and his girlfriend were looking for a place to smoke crack, but they didn't have any, they couldn't go to his place and they couldn't go to, and they'd be like, we'll come over and smoke you up. So for a while, I let people do that. That was cool too, you know, because I was like free, but yeah. um yeah. <laughs> so um, after that um, kind of, you know, and then these amazing amounts of time going by 10 months and I use again and it wasn't the same, you know, with my tolerance before, before when I was smoking day and night, you know, crackheads, you, you run out, you don't have a lighter, somebody needs stems. Nobody wants to go to the store. I would, I'd be like, I'll go. Cause I thought I was so cool that nobody knew I was high. Nobody knows I'm a huge crackhead. Yeah. Okay. Sure. <laughs> but I would go to the store and think I was so cool. And I was about as thick as a strand of hair. I'm sure everyone knew I was high, but, um, so eventually time went by and I did get to that morning where I was just like, I've been doing it again. And so I eventually stopped at, after that time I did stop, but you know, Jim, with the crack, I thought about a hit every single day, all day long for an entire year. It's a oh, serious, wow. 
Yes, it's horrible. But by the grace of God, you know, my friends will say, that's great. You did it. But, and look how long it's been. No, I don't, I don't take the credit in that way because if I thought I could get away with being a crackhead for the rest of my life and partying the way I love to party, well, I, I do it, but there's more to life. And it's really sad. I'm grateful. I woke up because starting at 12 after my dad died, I didn't realize it was making a choice. I was actually choosing a lifestyle that was going to last me for decades without even understanding it at age 12 and the grief and trauma that I had experienced that I was making basically a lifelong choice. So I'm really grateful that heaven pointed it out to me and grateful that I did stop because it just to get such a hold on you and anything really. It does so, not discriminate. It comes after anyone. Right. It can happen to anyone at any time. Right. Some of the crack, I think I started using crack um, also because about 27 years after my dad passed away, I needed reading glasses. So it was like the first couple of times using the glasses and I had put them on to read a piece of paper and I was taking the note up to better light. And it dawned on me the night my dad died, it wasn't going dark in his head. He was trying to fix the oxygen tank. My mother, it turns out, my mother murdered my father. She did something to his oxygen tank. So it got weirder and weirder from there because I realized that he was trying to see it. He was trying to fix it. So I brought it up to my mother and the sister that was home that night, the three of us, I said, I'm sending for dad's death certificate and his will. And my mother, her voice went up like three octaves. She wanted, she was like, why are you doing that? And I said, cause I have a lot of questions. Well, it gets weirder and weirder, Jim. His death certificate isn't filled out all the way. And the reason listed for cause of death is in medical terminology, but all it says is that he needed oxygen and that is never used as cause of death. We all need oxygen. I called where he supposedly worked. His will said that he was an assistant vice president of a huge life insurance company that's still there today uh, across the Ohio River in Kentucky from where we lived in Cincinnati. They never heard of him. I told the other sister, Louise, the one that wasn't home the night he died, she called them up as soon as we hung up. She called me right back. They never heard of him. I waited another two or three months and called again. This one checked the archives. They've never heard of my father. Um, it got weirder and weirder. Um, then I called the hospital where they took him DOA. And I have that paperwork too. 
um, that's where they gave us his clothes in a clear plastic bag. And that lady and I were in a screaming match by the end of the phone call. She was saying, we were not a facility for that at that time, 1976. And I was like, well, I've got the paperwork and this is where we got his clothes. So the family won't talk. I've quizzed them all. I've asked them, where did dad really work? What did dad really do? They're not talking, Jim. And I think back then, it kind of set me off. Only I had already been to the second offender program and realized that I didn't need to go out and start drinking again. So this was one reason when I discovered the crack, I was like, this is great. And it was numbing up all those questions I had. Um, that got weirder and weirder and weirder. Everything I checked, trying to get an answer. I just had five more questions for the original answer. So the family won't talk. No one will tell me anything. I mean, my sisters and mother, the rest of the family in New Hampshire think I'm an ass. How can you talk like that about your mother? And I say, how can you not care when she murders your brother? You all think I'm crazy just because I drank and did drugs. So this, these questions march on. I haven't had any answers as to any of where did he work? Who was he really? Why isn't there a record of him anywhere? Um, I typed his social security number into the computer and this encrypted file came up. And I couldn't make heads or tails of it. I did recognize a few names in there. Um, <coughs> excuse me. One of the names we used to uh, stop in Denver on our way to Montana, whenever we drove to Montana on family vacations and see them. So there's a, there was a lot of questions. It was a little more than I could deal with. Wasn't getting any answers from the family was being further shunned by the rest of the family. Um, you know, and I, I think that kind of helped me perpetuate getting back onto some drug. Um, so, yeah. Um, and today I have to tell you, I still wonder almost every day, who was he? What did he really do? Um, it has also, my lifestyle, my whole, well, you know, I was an alcoholic drinker. I had, after I walked out on my husband, I ended up getting pregnant in New Hampshire and keeping the baby um, with no husband. Um, I had two DWIs and one of my uncles um, taught driver's ed at the high school in Goffstown, New Hampshire. You know, they, they knew I was doing so there was a lot and then you know i came out with this um mom murdered dad thing so i'm not too popular with my family anymore um to the point that two memorial days ago one of my aunts i caught her in the act you know on memorial day you can go to the cemetery and put flowers down i had just finished at my father's site and i see this car coming and I'm like, oh no, I could tell it was one of my relatives and I was, I know they don't like me. So I was like, oh no, I'm gonna have to talk to them. And well, 
she didn't even notice me. It was an aunt that married into our family. She married my father's brother. And uh, so I just sat in my car. I didn't want to start it up until she left. I, I didn't want to draw attention to have to speak to her. She walked over and put these $2 and $48 geraniums plants down. And then she picked up my flowers and started heading back to her Jeep. And I got out of my car. I was so upset, Jim. I was screeching while I walked up to her, excuse me. And I took the flowers out of her hand. And she, she said, oh, sorry, sorry, Janet. They, they clashed. And well, I wasn't too happy. Um, I probably looked psycho after um, she wanted to get out of the cemetery so fast. She didn't even shut her hatch back. I watched that kind of bounce up and down all the way out of the cemetery. And then I went to a few cousins houses and I was very upset. I admit, I probably looked insane. I was like, don't anybody ever take my flowers off my father's grave. So, um, yeah, probably looked a little crazy. Um, so I don't have a very good reputation with the family though. They don't really have call. Um, I, I never did anything to them. Even when I went to their houses and was losing it, I had every right. And, you know, nobody has ever acknowledged these things or said, you know, that aunt, um, she married in the family and she married my dad's brother, but her husband isn't buried there. She, she had no business taking my flowers. So anyway, that's what it's come to in my family. They, they don't, talk to me they, they don't want to have anything to do with me they they think I'm a loser um they probably know I I don't know if they know I've been off drugs and alcohol for six years or not um my immediate family is still very abusive um they scapegoated me all my life and they still want to do it and I'm just not having it anymore um my mother passed away in October and she had been, you know, she was 96. So she was having some issues towards the end and she'd had a massive stroke and never regained her speech for about, um, about a year, maybe that year and a half. The sister who um, is executor only let me talk to my mom three times during that time. Um, if I wanted to write letters, I had to send them through her. I, while my mom was in these nursing homes prior, I was sending boxes with, you know, chocolates and a couple ones for the vending machine and a letter. And my mom said she was cold. I, I sent her those gloves that you can put the thing back and still have your fingers yeah. visible. Um, pajamas. My sister wouldn't let me, she wouldn't tell me where my mom was in the end. I had to send everything through her, um, through the sister, which, you know, and that, well, yeah. And that didn't have anything with the drinking and drugging. Cause I've been sober off of 
drugs and alcohol for six years, not the marijuana, but everything else and no relapses, Jim. And, and again, by the grace of God, but when I finally made up my mind, I stuck to it. And so it isn't because of anything like that. It's because there's, they scapegoat me and they love this control. And then they don't tell me anything. About 10 years ago, my daughter stopped talking to me. She sent me a dear mom letter when she went to college. No explanation. She just said it. she needed some time. And I assume that since she was going to college, uh, well, it's been 10 years. And when my daughter graduated college, she left Keene State College in New Hampshire and moved to Denver. So I'm out with a girlfriend and my girlfriend's like talking about my daughter out in Denver. And I was like, what? And she says, you don't know your daughter moved to Denver? And I was like, no. And then she couldn't, my girlfriend couldn't even look at me. She was so embarrassed for my family. Just kind of looking all around and going, um, and I think mm. with your sister too, she says, nobody tells me this stuff. I think that's weird, Jim. Yeah. So these kinds of things have been going on where all this stuff, family stuff, they don't tell me. When they moved my mom from Montana down to Oklahoma to live with the sister who's exact, they didn't tell me they moved her down there. Um, in November, it turns out one of my nephews got married. They didn't tell me. And that's when I said, hey, you guys, how about this time you lose my number? Because over the last couple of years, I've been blocking them and unblocking them and blocking them because my first choice would be harmony and repair, truth and goodness. It's not gonna come. They're, they're never gonna tell me who my father really was. They're never gonna tell me stuff like, hey, your daughter moved in with me, you know? And then this nephew that got married, the sister that was home that night um, was diagnosed schizophrenic after that night. And um, she had three children one was raised by the father and the other two were taken away by the state. So the one that was raised by the father, I helped her look for the other two, you know, and now he's married and they can't bother to just let me know he got married. So this is November now, last month, where I text both my sisters and was like, this time I said, do me a favor and lose my number. And I blocked them again. And so it's, Again, I would rather have the harmony and repair, but what's happening instead is all the hurt. It's really hurtful to be left out by them. It's really hurtful to always wonder why I don't measure up, um, but they're scapegoaters. They have been all my life. And if you've ever read about that, it's very damaging. The scapegoat dynamics are really weird. And you know what, sometimes, during that time too, that sister that cut me off from my mom, um, except when she said, sent me a text and it was scathing about how deplorable my character is. And so it made me cry every day for four months. It hurt my feelings so bad. And you know what, Jim, none of us need that. And when family can't grow up or change or be courteous enough to tell you who your father really was, though I'm pretty sure they know. Um, 
it gets to a, it got to a point for me where it's just better to shut them out than risk relapsing or saying to myself, why don't I just relapse and these kinds of things, you know, I'm absolutely, if you need to do that, you need to do that. And when you're ready, you'll undo it. Yep. But the thing is, is I did a lot of changing. They don't change. They still want to say I'm this, that. Um, my sister then sent a letter, a certified letter. The other sister said it was to apologize, but it wasn't. It was to further bash me. Um, she said I caused dissension everywhere I go with every entity and every. Yeah, no, no, I don't. I'm actually very well liked by my neighbors and friends. Um, I can't say I have a ton of friends, but these things that my family just, it, and I'm 58 and they're in their sixties. And I, I think it's time that we stop the nonsense, you know, but they never apologize for hurting my feelings or leaving me out. There's never a, well, we didn't tell you your daughter did this because she asked us not to. I mean, nothing, no, no explanation whatsoever. I'm just left floating around wondering things like, what did they say to my daughter to make her not talk to me anymore? Um, it is true. My daughter knew I was on drugs. I got started on crack when she was like 16, not six. I'm not excusing it. I'm very ashamed of it. Um, again, she was 16, not six. And I think I've taken a little bit more, you know, shunning, if you will, than necessary. Um, I, I went back to school and got a bachelor's degree. I stopped doing drugs. Um, there, there's just no pleasing them. You know, it's not like the movies sometimes when you get off drugs and alcohol, where the family accepts you again or wants anything to do with you, apparently. But um, that's the dysfunction in my family. So um, whatever their reasoning is for shunning me the way they did and scapegoating me, I'm not really sure. Um, they don't like I said, even when I ask about my dad and stuff like that, they don't answer me. It's so bizarre. Um, they know, I know, they know that I know that they know that I know. And yet no one will tell me about my father. They just want to act like I'm, you know, um, spreading rumors about my mom. I mean, I would think the rest of the family would be like, geez, Sally, what happened? You know, with and my mom just passed away, so I don't want to run her into the ground or say she was so horrible. Um, you know, a few years back, she apologized to me. It was, you know, half-hearted. But I took it and ran. And I said, I'm sorry, too, Mom. And even though I do kind of still blame her sometimes for my rebelliousness, she was kicking me out all the time. She made me go to school with my eyebrows shaved off before we even buried my father. I mean, um, but I got past a lot of it with her apology 
And I apologized and said, I'm sorry, I was so rebellious, even though I do kind of chalk that up to her treatment sometimes. Um, but it just, it, it never changed anything with the rest of the family. Um, I don't know, it's, it's a drag. I'd rather have some rep, you know, rep repair going on, but I can clearly see they're not gonna change. And these are people who have been sober for 25 years. Some of my family are going to church and there's apparently no forgiveness for me. One of my cousin's husbands got on crack and he left and started hanging out with some girl that used crack and their kids were really young, like four and five years old. And he spent a couple years out there smoking crack. And then by the grace of God came home. He was forgiven by the family, accepted back in his own words. He said, uncle Dave, and he married into the family, so he wasn't. He said, Uncle Dave opened me with welcome arms, like a son. And I'm like, great, because I'm his brother's daughter, and I can't get any forgiveness. And I didn't do anything to them, except maybe embarrass them. I mean, you know, when you teach driver's ed and your niece is getting two DWIs, probably nobody even put that together, but... You know, I could see where he might be a little bit embarrassed over that, but to never really accept me back when I, I changed my lifestyle, got a bachelor's degree. I, um, I did other things too, like um, petitioned. I put a lot of work into it to save the West Side Library here in Manchester, even speaking at two city meetings. Um, besides all the names I collected on foot before we were doing all this... Um, signing petitions online stuff so i'm just saying you know um that's great it, it just never doing good yeah you know in in my mind i am i wasn't perfect i'm still not perfect that's not my goal by the way to be perfect but um i do know that i'm living right not on drugs and even when I was on drugs, I was still showing up to work and doing most of what I should have been doing, you know, the functioning alcoholic or whatever they call that. But, um, you know, at this point, I'm 58. I'd just like to have a, a little acceptance. I mean, when my mom died in October, not one family member said anything, not even on Facebook Messenger. Um, the one cousin that I did contact here, he just texts back, oh, it was expected. That's all he said, because my mom was 96. So, I mean, they can't even pretend to show some what would be acceptable um, acknowledgement of another family member within our family. My mom didn't live around here, you know. Um, they're all out West, so we don't see much of them up here, and but there are aunts and uncles here that were still communicating with my mom quite a bit and my sister or one of the sisters. And so it's just, I can't imagine what ever happened to make me so quote unquote unforgivable. Um, you know, where they, 
I kind of feel like they disrespected my mother by not acknowledging her to me as well, not just disrespecting me. So, I mean, to that degree, I just, I don't get it, but I figure I'm going to move on, keep moving on, keep staying with the goals that I made and kept. And I'm happy with myself. I know I haven't been perfect. And like I said, you know, I was kind of dealing crack because I was taking, I wasn't a dealer. I didn't sit in bars and try to sling stuff. I just, everybody was giving me their money. And next thing, so I was in a way selling it. And, you know, I, I can forgive myself, you know? And so anyway, more recently now I have been, trying to stop smoking marijuana. I'm not getting any support on it because nobody has a problem with pot. Nobody considers it a drug. Two counselors have told me they can't help me with it. They don't have a problem with it. These kinds of things. So um, I am adamant that I'm going to do it. it. My goal is to stop smoking pot for 90 consecutive, consecutive days because six years off the drugs and alcohol. I think I owe it to myself after smoking pot for 45 years to find, to see what I might see if I stop smoking pot. So I'm having a hard time with that. When we emailed the first time I was on day five, uh, today is day one again, again, um, since April, I've been trying. In April, I made it 15 days, smoked one day, did another six, and since then, I've had a random couple days here, there, a couple days here, there. Um, since April, though, it's dawned on me that I have done, in that time, 50 days, not consecutive, 50 days no using. And in December, I used 10 less grams of marijuana. So I haven't met the 90 days consecutive, but I realized, even though that's a great plan, it might not be heaven's plan. And here's why. Um, I didn't stop smoking crack the first time I tried either. The thing now too is in this real realization that I have done 50 days of not using and 10 grams less, less, this is how it begins for me. I'm seeing a pattern. So it's not a cop out. I haven't given up on it. I am going to do 90 days consecutive. I feel like I owe it to myself to see. Now, a lot of people say there's nothing wrong with weed, but over the last few months, I've been doing a lot more research and um, things like George Soros is funding the legalization of pot, which made me scratch my head a little bit. Um, it's stronger now. So in this time period of smoking less and trying to stop, I'm realizing that marijuana has been causing nausea it's supposed to help with nausea and it does in very small, small doses. Apparently I've been causing nausea for myself. And I know this because I've had days not smoking and consecutively, and I'm realizing my nausea is gone. I'm using half as many Excedrins and these kinds of things. So I'm seeing a pattern when I quit doing stuff, Apparently I have to use again so I can start to notice the differences. 
but I'm adamant because it is a drug and I know it has changed my personality because I had a certain bartending job and I won't say where in case they ever hear this podcast, <laughs> but <laughs> um, I worked there two years and every time on my way to work, I'd smoke a little bit of pot except for one day, only one time I didn't smoke on the way to work. And that day, everyone wanted to know, are you okay today? Is everything all right? You don't seem like yourself. And I didn't tell them, but since then I've been like, it must change you because the one time I did not smoke going to work, everybody noticed there was a difference. So I'm kind of, and during the whole time quitting this whole time of not drinking and doing other drugs, I didn't really care either. I'm like, it's pot. So what? But I'm starting to wonder, is it, is it just pot? So what is it? Especially the potency today. It, you know, um, I stumbled onto this place called um, Johnny's Ambassadors. And they're there to help, oh, the, the woman's story, Laura Stack is amazing. Her son was using marijuana and he died and it's tragic, but she has turned it into Johnny's ambassadors, her and her family. And just, they're, they're trying to help teens get off marijuana or never get started. But I listened to her podcast with um, Savage. I think it was number 493, if anybody wants to listen. And she goes into some of this stuff about how much more potent it is today and some of the differences of what's going on and why people really maybe should be thinking about it like a drug and not just, oh, it's just pot. It's not, it's not just pot. It's doing a lot of things, especially to younger brains that haven't fully developed. Um, also, you know, all drug money goes back to supporting crime, you know, no matter what it is. Um, and I never really cared about that, honestly, until sometimes when I'm trying to stop and I remind myself, you know, all this stuff is supporting child trafficking, human trafficking, pedophilia, you know, these kinds of things. And so sometimes I wish, you know, people would think of these things and get mad and that would help them stay off whatever drugs they're trying to stay off of too, you know, where sometimes I think if we could just sober up long enough and get mad, you know, and say to ourselves, is there a breakdown in, in food chain supply and getting food delivered? Well, how come all the drugs are still coming through? Yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. Yeah. So, um, but the pot, I mean, it's kind of, you know, I don't want to take up a your podcast talking about marijuana because a lot of people don't consider it a drug and I don't want people to think, well, you know, she thinks she has some big problem smoking pot, but, um, I don't, I don't think it's a huge problem. I just think I owe it to myself after smoking 45 years, realizing the great things that happen when I stopped drinking and other drugs, what that has done for me personally I owe it to myself to stop long enough to see what I might see. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I recently stopped smoking marijuana. I have a medicinal card for it and I just got bored. Tell you the truth. It didn't do, it didn't help me anymore. Yes. And it was just not, 
it didn't help. So if it's not going to help me, it's not going to help me with my bipolar calming down, and it's not going to help me go to sleep, I'm not going to use it. Yeah, yeah. And see, that's what I'm finding too. This little voice has been nagging me, and I've been ignoring it because me, I love, I love pot. So, um, but it won't stop. And where was I going with that? The little voice keeps nagging me, and I owe it to myself. Um, I forget where I was going with that this time, though. Um, I think I wrote a couple things down just in case I got stuck and didn't want to waste too much time going, um, um, um. Also, um, those medical cards, you know, if you own a medical card, you can't own a gun. They, they don't tell you that. I don't even know if it's in the small print. Um, also, those medical cards, one thing that bothers me about it right now is um, they don't have any dosing instructions with it. If it's going to be a medical thing, there ought to be, you know, two pups a day, two pups every three hours. I, I don't know. It's so people are going and buying marijuana and just going home and smoking up, like, you know, to their. But what I'm finding. That's is, not a problem because the majority of people can do it they can go and just smoke pot every now then there's us the addicts we're the minority yes I, I try to remind myself of that too and um with um i had it back and it went away again but um the nagging little voice wouldn't stop and i owe it to myself and um who knows what I, I might see, or, you know, and maybe if I reevaluate, maybe I'll just go back to using, maybe I'll cut down, maybe I'll only smoke before bed. I don't know. But, um, right now I, I wonder what might happen. Plus I realized I'm not as nauseous all the time. And this really is amazing to me. I've been having a lot of medical issues and one of them is chronic nausea. And to discover that maybe I've been making myself nausea the last, not just the last few years with my marijuana use. I'm a pretty heavy smoker. Um, you know, now I really need to stop and figure out what's going on with some of my illnesses. Is it the pot? Well, the only one you got to quit. That's it. That's it. You have to quit. Yeah, I, I have to quit at this point. I mean, before I was doing it because um, I want to see what I might see, but I'm starting to realize like I'm really going to have to quit and find out what's going on A to Z. Because if you can't, then you have an addiction problem with marijuana. Well, this is what I'm I'm discovering, too, is I've quit, you know, 17 times since April. You know what I mean? Keep at it. So getting towards the end here, let me ask you one last question. Okay. Do you have any advice for people watching and listening? I sure do. I do. I have a lot of advice and maybe it will seem silly, but if you can change your routine, and this is what I'm seeing with the pot, it reminded me I've got a pattern. We're just stopping for a few days and even if you smoke pot again or whatever drug, if you can keep 
stopping here and there, you're going to notice changes. You're going to start to notice things. I like to, um, like right now, especially with uh, it being the new year, I never make resolutions. But this year I did. I, not a resolution, but I'm saying this is the perfect time to start again and actually do those 90 days. Um, if, if you can change your routine. So I actually have a bud, but I stashed it away because I don't get as weird. Like when I try to quit smoking cigarettes, I'll stick a couple up in the cupboard because if I want one and no, Why I don't are you have keeping the bud? Why are you keeping the bud? Same reason, just like when I try to quit smoking cigarettes, if I jones and I just can't take it anymore, or I think it helps me too, where I'm like, I know there's a cigarette up there where I'm kind of like, I'm cool. I'm cool. I know there's one right there. If I just can't stand it at three in the morning, say. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to have it around. That's the only thing is like, personally, when I came home from rehab, you know what I had? I had a bottle of 90 Klonopin. Right. I could, and I kept it for a few days. And then I eventually said, why am I keeping it? I go, so I can eventually use it. So I threw it away. Yeah. I dumped it in the toilet to make sure I couldn't get it out. Yeah. Well, that's where I'm at right now. I don't know if I'll still keep it around. In a couple of days, I'll probably end up smoking it. Hopefully not. I really do want to make the 90 days. I just, 45 years is a long time to be doing the same drug. Yeah. But also, um, just these things of changing up, if you can change one thing, you know, if you know you want to stop smoking crack and you stop at 7-Eleven for your coffee every morning and run into Tim and Tim's like, I got some great shit every morning. He's got great shit. And you go over and get high. You might want to make your coffee somewhere else for a while. You got to change your routine. Unless you're strong enough, if you're one of those that are strong enough to be like, I'm not smoking for a while or maybe never again. I wasn't at first. I wasn't strong enough. Um, I found myself in the very beginning actually lying. Somebody would be like, come on, come on. We always go over. Let's go. Let's go. And I was like, no, no. And instead of saying, I'm trying to quit, I, I made up some lie that I had to be some... You know what I mean? Because I wasn't strong enough to tell people, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to see what it's, I'm going to try. So whatever reason that was for, I don't know. But um, you, you, you have to change up some, I know I did. I had to stop going to make my coffee at the same place all the time and go to a different place where I wasn't running into the very people I was going to be tempted by. Um, or, you know, if you can... Maybe you used to draw, try getting a sketch pad. And one thing that worked for me too is <clears throat> towards the end, getting the crack when I had lost all my connections and was having to pay for it. One time I took the 40 bucks and I was like, you know what? Forget getting high. I'm going to go get those heels. There was a pair of shoes I just adored. And you know what? Instead of getting high one day, I went and got those shoes and I put them, even though I wasn't wearing them every day, I put them right where I could see them, like looking up from my computer and I'd, I'd see them, see them. And you know what? It worked. I would say to myself, 
that was so much better than getting high. I got those shoes, which last. The high goes up in smoke, literally. It didn't work every time. Like, let's say the next time I wanted to get high and I'd look at the shoes and be like, no, I'm going to go get a shirt, right? And then there was one time I was like, yeah, I'm going to get high. But it was almost good in the way that it reminded me, no, look, look at the shoes, the shoes. I've got those shoes now. It was, so you start to, at least I started to say, I'm going to go spend my money on this. Forget getting high. So that started to help. Give yourself small rewards and put them where you can see them. Go get those shoes that you've been walking by every day that you want instead of getting high. And so that helped. Um, and then again, changing routines. And then if you're like me and you can make it a few days and not get high, maybe you get high again, then maybe you don't get high for a little bit and you get high, you're going to, I can only speak for myself. That's where I start to notice differences and start to really realize that there's more, it, start, it started to change my, where I didn't just pick up the phone and hit speed dial. What do you got? I'm coming over, you know, kind of thing. Where I started saying, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to go buy a steak today instead of getting high. I've been wanting filet mignon. I'm going to treat myself. So find ways to treat yourself and keep that stuff where you can see it so it reminds you. And educating yourself about, say, alcohol and what it does to the brain and body. You know, a lot of people start to get concerned about their health after a while and what the drugs and stuff might be doing. Um, the second offender DWE program here was really good for that, just that kind of thing, because they would teach you stuff like when women drink, it goes right to their bloodstream. When men drink, it goes to their stomach first. It gets broken down a little bit. So there's a, a lot of things, you know, like, cause people will say men handle their alcohol better than women. Well, that's because it goes to their stomach first. Alcohol shuts down your peripheral vision. Alcohol shuts down your hearing. That's why when the police go to a party at 2 a.m., the music's blasting because people have been drinking and everything goes up, up, up. So I know for me, some of that stuff was really amazing to learn and helped me say, well, no wonder people are such idiots when they drink. And that's another thing too. Stop using whatever drug you're using and then watch your friends show up and watch your friends sober, stay sober and watch your friends get high a little bit and start to see what you're probably acting like or what you look like or how, you know, when you are watching your friend nod off and start to say to yourself, am I doing that too? And sometimes these are things that get people's attention too, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, I don't know. I did write down a couple of things. I'll glance at them as we're closing up here. But um, the thing is, it's so worth it. It's so worth it. Um, when I stopped drinking and doing the crack, I realized that I had been perpetuating a lot of my own immaturity, if you will. First of all, I started using when I was 12 and 13 
to numb up the things that happened at 12 and 13. And certainly life was different and I never reevaluated. So some of the stuff I realized that I had perpetuated my own immaturity by never getting off drugs and alcohol, facing some of those things and maturing, growing up, finding a resolution for some of that stuff. You know, like my mom kicking me out of the house. I got over that. I, you know, the forgiveness and, and getting sober and dealing with those emotions. Um, yeah. So yeah, no. I grew up quite a bit. Understand. Um, Understood. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe in my, in my case, after doing drugs for decades, I mean, I probably grew up a lot, you know? Yeah, most likely. Inside, especially. Maybe not noticeable to other people. But I know for myself, I was like, wow, I wish I had done this decades ago. I wish I'd been fortunate enough to realize this decades ago and and have a better life and not be so, um, you know, I sort of allowed myself to stay triggerable to everything by never dealing with all those emotions that got me started numbing stuff up in the first place. So, so did you have any final advice before um, we go? I just think, just advice to the listener. No, you know, that's, I think um, my advice is you're worth it. Take your life back. It's okay to get off drugs. Um, I know we have rehabs and, you know, people are encouraged to get off drugs. I don't think anybody has said it's okay. In, in just those words, it's okay. Get off the drugs, reevaluate. It's okay. Take your life back. It's so awesome to gain some control self-respect and new possibilities and things i would not be recognizing if i was still using and it's hard but it's so worth it and all of us are worth it we are worth getting over the things that started us just like if you started drinking, say, in college, the keggers, and it turned out you're a beer bong champion. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe you're still a weekend warrior out there and you don't know. It's okay to reevaluate. It's okay to go back to not drinking. No, that's great advice. I really appreciate that. Oh, Jim, thank you so much for having no me. No problem. It was a pleasure. I look forward, I look forward <clears throat> to it. It was definitely my pleasure. All right, do me a favor, sit tight. And for everybody watching and listening, if you like what you saw and heard, go below and give us a like. Also, yeah, yeah. I say uh, go to our website, which is www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you find plenty of free resources and literature. You can also check us out on all social media, such as Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. You name it, we're on it. I hope you enjoyed today in the interview. And until next time. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. I'm really enjoying all your podcasts. All right. Take care. Thank you. You too. Take care, everybody. You're worth it.